0: This time the children will be heading to their classroom out this door and the youth will be going out uh, the back to the youth area with Pastor Bree. As they uh, go, I invite you to just uh, once again pray briefly um, with me. Lord, thanks so much uh, for your word this morning For the nourishment and challenge that it gives to our lives, for the um, hope that it gives us, we pray, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, speak through your Word today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, Since today we've had an emphasis on hymns in our worship, I wanted to begin with the lyrics for what uh, many might consider the most loved hymn of all time. Maybe you can guess what that is. Um, As It was his practice to write hymns to go along with his sermons. Amazing Grace was written by John Newton to illustrate a sermon on New Year's Day in 1773. Newton was the 18th century sea captain of English slave ships who experienced conversion and then left that evil life, later becoming a Christian preacher and composer. So these are the words that he wrote that inspire us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. "'Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He willed my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace.'" The earth shall soon dissolve like snow. Isn't that quite the image? The sun forbear to shine, but God who called me here below will be forever mine. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. And this last verse, by the way, was not written by John Newton, but it was actually added to the hymn much later by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, She brought Newton's hymn into her uh, abolitionist novel in the 1850s, Uncle Tom's Cabin, and she actually borrowed the words from that stanza from another hymn, and that other hymn that she borrowed from contained 50 stanzas, so I guess it was okay to borrow one of them. The scriptural undergirding of this hymn runs throughout it, doesn't it? But the first stanza of the hymn in particular um, seems to me to be remarkable in how many scriptures could be referenced in just those four simple lines. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. has echoes of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 and Romans 7, 24 and 25, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. What a wretched man am I. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he goes on, I once was lost, but now am found, which has echoes of Luke 15 the um, chapter that's filled with Jesus' narratives of lost things being found, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the return of the lost son. And then the last line was blind, but now I see, which portrays the contrast between blindness and seeing, a a theme that's carried throughout the Gospels from the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke 4.18 when he proclaims, He has sent me to bring recovery of sight to the blind, then followed by the touch of Jesus, bringing sight to the blind in several of the gospel narratives. So as I said, the hymn was written by Newton to illustrate a sermon that he was preaching on New Year's Day in 1773. Surprisingly, though, even though there's many New Testament passage themes running through it, It wasn't a sermon on a New Testament passage. It was a hymn actually written for a sermon on 1 Chronicles 17, 16 to 17, which says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my family, that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, my God, you have spoken about the future of the house of your servant— You, Lord God, have looked on me as though I were the most exalted of men. That's what the sermon was on, and that's what this hymn was written about. The hymn gave voice to King David's thankfulness at God's grace and the covenant promise of a kingdom that would endure through all generations. And so in the six stanzas of the hymn that he wrote, The Story of Grace, moves from conversion to providence to the hope and peace as he passes within the veil of death. This beloved hymn captures the riches of God's grace and the promise of an everlasting future of the house of David, which we know was fulfilled in Jesus, even though the hymn never mentions Jesus's name. The hymn also hints of Newton's own conversion experience Seen in the use of his word wretch and the literal, literally wretched life that Newton had left behind. Newton had a lavish perception of God's grace because he himself had experienced it. And he had once written that Jesus has unsearchable inexhaustible riches of grace to bestow. God's grace is amazing. God's grace is amazing. And the riches of his grace are unsearchable, unfathomable, immeasurable, inexhaustible, incomparable. Those are the words that the various translations use in Ephesians 2.7. We can't ever, ever plumb the depths of the riches of God's grace. So for today's message, we're going to look a little more closely at one simple verse related to grace. 1 Peter 4, verse 10. It's going to be up on the wall. Oh, it is up on the wall. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Last Sunday, if you weren't here, Pastor Hank preached a wonderful sermon from Malachi 3 related to giving. Listen to it if you haven't yet. But in it, he shared a bit about what it means to be a steward. A steward is a manager, someone entrusted with the care and oversight of something. According to William Barclay, in the ancient world, the steward was very important. He himself might have been a slave, but his master's goods were in his hands. The steward knew well that nothing of the things over which he had control belonged to him. They all belonged to his master, and in his administration of them, his one duty was to consult his master's interests, and in everything he did, he was answerable to his master. The Christian, he says, must always be under the conviction that nothing he possesses of material goods or personal qualities is his own, that everything he possesses belongs to God, that he must ever use what he has in the interests of God, as God would use it, and that he is always answerable to God. If that be so, the Christian will be certain that all he has must be used in the service of others. The word that's translated as gift here in verse 10 is the Greek word charisma, We've uh, adopted that word into the English language to mean something different, but in the Greek, it means gift. And it's the same word that's used in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians 12 for gifts of the spirit. Charisma, gifts, come from the root word charis, which is the word for grace. So the verse essentially says, Each of you should use whatever grace gift or spiritual gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. Well, there were two main kinds of stewards in the ancient world. One was the person who managed the actual estate, the property, the buildings. The other was called the dispensator or the dispenser. And this person managed all of the domestic details of the household. Perhaps then we should understand that as we use our spiritual gifts to serve others, we literally dispense God's grace to the world. From this small verse, we've unpacked a bit of the meaning of gift and steward, but the word in this verse that I find the most interesting as we think together about grace today is the Greek word, and I'm not very good at pronouncing Greek, but it's like poikilos, poikilos. It's a word that's used to describe the grace that we are to steward. In the NIV, it's the part that's translated in its various forms. That's that word, poikilos. I came across this word. I forgot to bring it up with me. It's on my chair back there. I came across this word um, in a book that I have. Um, that was from the youth auction years ago. I was so excited one year when a a full set of William Barclay commentaries was donated, hardcover even, was donated to the youth auction. I think I was the only one who was excited about it, so of course I won the bid. Um, When I um, collected the set, I saw that it included one extra book beyond the Bible commentaries. And it was this book that Barclay wrote called New Testament Words. And it just goes through one word after another that's unusual in the scriptures. Um, It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, So in that book, I read that the word poikilos literally means many-colored It's a word, he says, that's used in Greek that was often related to natural objects. William Barclay wrote, a leopard's skin is said to be poikilos, many-colored. A snake is said to be poikilos. The word describes the iridescent quality of the snake's skin. The plumage of birds is said to be poikilos. The word describes the many- colored sheen of the feathers and he says red granite stone is said to be poikilos. The word describes the many colored glint of the granite as the light strikes upon it. Poikilos goes on to describe not only natural objects but things made and manufactured by the hands of men and women. It means wrought in various colors, cunningly made and it describes a many colored carpet. It describes a richly embroidered robe of many colors. It describes the cunningly wrought metalwork of an elaborately embossed shield. And then he says, Poikilos goes a step further. It describes anything which is intricate or complex. And so it can describe an elaborately compounded medicine or a complex and complicated law. Most of the occurrences of the word poikilos in the New Testament were translated in the King James Version as divers. It's an archaic word that's not used today, generally replaced by us by a similar word, diverse. So you can imagine its meaning. It's translated in NIV as various or all kinds, and it's used in reference to things like diseases and lusts and miracles. William Barclay wrote, there is one occasion, which is our verse today, on which Peter, with a touch of sheer genius, uses the word poikilos to describe the grace of God. The King James Version translates it the manifold grace of God, as does the New Revised Standard Version. When we remember what poikilos means, He says, this is a tremendous thought. And then he continues, to speak of the grace of God as poikilos, multicolored, means that there is no color in the human situation which the grace of God cannot match. Isn't that an amazing line? There's no color in the human situation which the grace of God cannot match. It matters not whether a person is living in the gold of the sunshine of joy or success or in the somber black of sorrow and pain. There is that in the grace of God which can match his or her situation. He says no possible situation can arise in life which the grace of God cannot match and answer. Praise God. And then he continues even further. Poikilos means artful, clever, resourceful. Therefore, to speak of the grace of God as poikilos means that no possible problem can arise to which the grace of God cannot supply the solution. No possible task can be laid upon us which the grace of God cannot find a way to do. There is no possible set of circumstances, no possible crisis, emergency, or demand through which the grace of God cannot find a way, and which the grace of God cannot triumphantly deal with and overcome. There is nothing in life with which the grace of God cannot cope. This vivid word, poikilos, leads our thoughts straight to the many-colored grace of God, which is indeed sufficient for all things. As I've been thinking this week, um, defining grace is not the simplest of tasks. We use the word in so many ways. Banks give a grace period. Politicians and celebrities fall from grace. In musical notation, there's a grace note. A ballet dancer is said to be full of grace. So when God talks about grace, what does he mean? The Greek word for grace, charis, as we've said, is the root word for gift. It's God's unmerited favor, God's gift to us, not something that we can earn. Uh, Many times in my life, I've heard preachers remind us that there's not a single thing that we could do that would make God love us less. Maybe I should say that again, just in case there's somebody here today doubting that God loves you because of your sin. There is not a single thing that you could do that would ever make God love you less. His love is steadfast, immovable. But the flip side of this statement is just as true, my friends. There's not a single thing that you could ever do that would make God love you more. That's grace. So a popular way of explaining grace is, that I remember hearing in my probably my teen years is the acrostic, G-R-A-C-E, God's Riches at Christ's Expense. And one of my favorite explanations or descriptions of grace was given by one of my Bible professors in college. I think it was in my Life and Letters of Paul class and somebody must have asked Like, what's the difference between grace and mercy? And the professor used Charles Schultz's peanut characters to explain. He said, mercy is what God gives to Charlie Brown because he can't help himself. Grace is what he gives to Lucy because she doesn't deserve it. John Stott said grace is loving, is God loving. Grace is God loving, God stooping, God coming to the rescue, God giving himself generously in and through Jesus Christ. One writer has said grace is not a gift that God packages and bestows on us in creation, Grace is God's presence to create, heal, forgive, reconcile, and transform human hearts, communities, and the entire creation. Wherever God is present, there is grace. Grace brought creation into existence. Grace birthed human beings, bestowed on us the divine image, redeemed us in Jesus Christ, and is ever transforming the whole creation— into the realm of God's reign of compassion, justice, generosity, and peace. Well, there are countless hymns that reflect on God's grace in addition to Amazing Grace and the others that we sang this morning. When we sing, Come Thou Fount, we say, O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Or grace greater than our sin, in which we sing marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Or one of my favorites, Charles Wesley's hymn, Oh for a thousand tongues to sing. Oh for a thousand tongues to sing. My great, well, my paper says my dear Redeemer's praise. I say my great Redeemer's praise. The glories of my God and King, the triumphs of his grace, my gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the worth, the world abroad, the honors of thy name. The brothers Charles and John Wesley seemed to grasp the multifaceted, multicolored grace of God. Um, besides all that they wrote in their hymns, they taught and preached that there's prevenient grace, grace to prepare us, that there's justifying grace, grace to redeem us, and that there's sanctifying grace, grace to shape us. I was thinking this week, how, how to explain prevenient grace, um, the grace that prepares us, the grace that helps us to be drawn To God that draws us to open our hearts to Jesus and as I was thinking about it a memory from my high school years flooded my mind. The Barnum and Bailey Circus was performing in Boston and I got to go see them and I thought this was going to be just the most wonderful thing and it was a torturous event to me. The most fascinating and the most frightening part of the evening was the trapeze artist segment. Even just thinking about it all these years later makes me catch my breath. If you've been to a circus, you've seen them too, high in the air, doing spectacular things. I was so drawn to watching them and hated watching them at the very same time. I was literally on the edge of my seat, terrified that somebody would miss. One of the artists would already be in motion before another would do part of the act. The first motion in and of itself was nothing spectacular. That seems to me to be like prevenient grace preparing the way for the spectacular to occur. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit is present in our lives, drawing us closer to Christ through an experience that causes us to think more deeply about spiritual things or through the loving support of a friend or through the modeling of faith by another person Or through a sermon that sounds like God speaking directly to us. Through seeing God's majesty in nature. And the the list could go on. Think back for a minute to the parable of the lost son in Luke 15. He was feeding slop to pigs in the field. So hungry that he was longing to feed himself with what the pigs were eating. And Luke tells us that through that experience... Through the feeding of the pigs, Luke says, he came to himself. He came to his senses, some translations say. And he made the decision at that moment to return to the Father. That experience with the pigs could be an example of God's prevenient grace, the grace that draws a sinner home. The second, time, second type of grace is justifying grace, the grace that redeems us. Accepting the gift of salvation through repenting of sin and putting our faith, not in ourselves, but in Jesus, we experience new birth and new life. And Ephesians 2 paints this beautifully for us, especially in verses 4 and 5. It says, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And it's just a few verses later in that same passage that remind us that we're not saved by anything that we can do, that it's only by grace through faith. This is an important word for anyone not yet in Christ to know that all you need to do is to yield to God's grace. Every other religion in the world is about doing. Every other religion requires that you do something. While Christ, when he said, it is finished, has already done all that is needed. I remember conversations with Martha Lady, who served as the first uh, woman pastor at Messiah Village's um, church at Messiah Lifeways, decades ago. And I remember talking with her and her saying how surprised she was by how many older people, as their lives were drawing to a close, did not have the assurance of their salvation, wondering if they had done enough to be welcomed by the Lord. The gospel is an invitation to receive a gift, but many people hear it as a summons that we have to do better. I've shared before um, in other sermons that my father was a wretch, to use John Newton's word. I like that word. In 2018, shortly before my father passed away, I felt called by God uh, to go see him. And I flew up to Massachusetts to visit him in order to tell him face to face that I had forgiven him. My older sister and I went to visit him And I saw him that day for the first time in 16 years. And as he talked about his life, he said something that completely and absolutely shocked me. He said, I think I've been good enough. Good enough by whose measure? My father, the adulterer, the liar, the thief and who knows what else might have been part of his list, thought he was good enough. That's at least three out of the 10 Commandments. (laughs) And I'm pretty certain that there are at least a couple more he didn't keep. On whose scale would 50% be enough? When I picked my jaw back up in that moment I gently shared with him that when he meets God, which was soon coming, it wouldn't be what, about what he had done or not done, but about what Jesus did. None of us can do enough to earn God's love and forgiveness. It's all grace, his saving grace. And a third type of grace portrayed in the scriptures is sanctifying grace, the grace that shapes us. God by his grace is able to free us from the power of sin as we press on to hold, to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul says in Philippians 3:12. 2 Corinthians 3:17 and 18 reminds us, now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That seems to me to be sanctification. I don't know a name for this fourth type of grace that I think is portrayed in the scriptures. So I call it empowering grace. Second Corinthians twelve nine to ten gives us, the, excuse me, these words from Paul. But he said to me, "My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships." in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. I'll tell you today that my own journey of forgiving my father helps me to know that God's empowering grace is real. I knew I needed to forgive him, but for years and years, and I mean probably 30 of them at least, I tried and I tried, And I tried to do so, always finding myself back at that same place of unforgiveness. It was the most discouraging thing in my spiritual life, wanting so much to glorify the Lord in my words, my deeds, my thoughts, and my attitude, yet being far from that in this one area of my life. And sometime, I don't know when it was, I waved the white flag. And I told the Lord that I seemed to be trying in vain and that I needed his grace to work his forgiveness in me. I needed him to do what I could not do. I can't tell you how it happened. I can't tell you when it happened. But I can tell you that it did happen, that I was able, by God's grace, to forgive my father, God's empowering grace. God's grace, my friends, is amazing. In the early 1900s in Japan, there was a man named Tokichi Ishii. His father was a drunkard and a gambler. He had lost all that the family had. And as a boy at 13 years old, Tokichi Ishii had a choice to make, starve or steal. And thus he resorted to a life of stealing. His first time of being arrested and put in jail was when he was 19 years old. And he was subsequently jailed many more times. And there in jail, he was exposed not just to petty thieves like himself, but to hardened criminals, and he learned more and more from them about how to actually commit crimes. And so as the years went on, his criminal activity increased. And late one night, he was robbing a woman as as she was leaving her work at a tea house, and in order to keep her from screaming, not wanting to get caught, he choked her, and she died. He also killed other home robbery victims in order to keep them from screaming and drawing the attention of their neighbors. And so the thief had become a murderer. And by this point in his life, he was a very hardened man. While in jail for being caught once again as a petty thief, he heard other prisoners discussing the case of the woman that he had killed outside the tea house. The woman's lover, his name was Komori, had was being tried for her murder. And Ishii, though this hardened criminal, couldn't bear the idea of an innocent man being punished for the crime that he had committed. And so he confessed to the murder. And while in prison, awaiting his trial, he received a gift of a special meal on New Year's Day. And this is what he wrote in his journal. He said, the year 1915 closed and the first day of the New Year opened. Early in the morning, a special New Year's meal was brought to me instead of the ordinary prison fair, and I was told that two ladies, by the names of Miss West and Miss McDonald, had sent it to me. Who could these two persons be, I wondered. I had never seen or heard of them before. There was." no reason why I should receive anything from people I did not know, and I told the official that I could not accept the gift. The official said that these ladies were Christian missionaries and had sent the food out of kindness and sympathy, and so I I need not hesitate to accept it. As I look back now, I cannot but think how perverse is the heart of a wicked man It cannot be described either by word or by parable. When I was out in the world, I robbed people without compunction. But now when something is offered to me freely, I refuse it. What kind of foolish perversion can this be? He said, the food was sent to me during the first three days of the new year. A few days later, a New Testament and two or three other Christian books were received from the same source, but I put them up on the shelf and did not even look into them. One day a person by the name of Miss West came purposely to visit me and talk to me about Jesus Christ. I shall tell you exactly what I thought at that time. When I was out in the world, I had not listened seriously even to talks about my own religion, so naturally I had never wanted to hear about Christianity. Although I thought it was very kind of Miss West to come talk talk to me, I did not pay much attention to what she said. Of course, I behaved with decorum as the occasion demanded. These visits continued from time to time. And then he says, one day I got tired of sitting by myself with nothing to do. And just for the sake of putting in the time, I took the New Testament down from the shelf and with no intention of seriously looking into it, I glanced at the beginning and then at the middle. I was casually turning over the leaves when I came across a place that looked rather interesting and I began to read. And there he read of Jesus steadfastly setting his face to go to Jerusalem. I laid the book down thinking that these were surely the words of someone who wanted to teach men the path of virtue. But otherwise I was not specially moved by them. Later on, I picked up the book again and read these words, and this time he read the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15. Still, he says, I was not sufficiently impressed to have any special belief in what I was reading. I simply thought these were the words that any preacher might use. I put the New Testament on the shelf again and did not read anymore for some time. Later, when I was tired of doing nothing, I took the book down once more, and began to read. This time I read how Jesus was handed over to Pilate to his enemy by his enemies, was tried unjustly, and put to death by crucifixion. As I read this, I began to think, this person they called Jesus was evidently a man who at any rate tried to lead others into the path of virtue, and it seemed an inhuman thing to crucify him simply because he had d- different religious opinions from others. Even I hardened criminal that I was, thought it a shame that his enemies should have treated him in this way. I went on and my attention was next taken by these words and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I stopped, I was stabbed to the heart as if pierced by a five inch nail. What did the verse reveal to me? Shall I call it the love of the heart of Christ? Shall I call it his compassion? I do not know what to call it. I only know that with an unspeakably grateful heart, I believed. Through this simple sentence, I was led into the whole of Christianity. And this is how I thought it out, he wrote. I suppose a man's greatest enemy is the one who seeks to take his life from him. There is surely no greater enemy than this. Now at the very moment when Jesus' life was being taken from him, he prayed for his enemies to the God of heaven. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What else could I believe but that he was indeed the Son of God? I argue that an ordinary man is filled with anger and hatred and every other spiteful passion on the slightest provocation. Jesus, on the other hand, prayed for his enemies at the very moment his life was being taken, the life which was so precious that nothing could take its place. Was an act like this possible for an ordinary man? I do not think so. Then we cannot but say he was God. And then he wrote again, chaplains and pastors and those who see men die agree that the last words a man utters come from the depths of his soul and that he does not die with lies upon his lips. Jesus's last words were, "'Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do.' And so I cannot but believe that they reveal his true heart." And then he said, "'I wish to speak now of the greatest favor of all, the power of Christ, which cannot be measured by any of our standards. I have been more than 20 years in prison since I was 19 years of age, And during that time, I have known what it meant to endure suffering, although I have had some pleasant times as well. I have passed through all sorts of experiences and have been urged often to repent of my sins. In spite of this, however, I did not repent, but on the contrary, became more and more hardened. And then by the power of that one word of Christ's father, forgive them for they know not what they do. My unspeakably hardened heart was changed, and I repented of all my crimes. Such power is not in man. That is God's amazing grace. Tokicho Ishii went to trial for the woman's murder, but without any evidence, he was acquitted. Most people would have been relieved, but the acquittal disturbed him terribly as he couldn't bear the thought of an innocent man being punished for his crime and so he appealed his acquittal and in his new trial provided more evidence that he had indeed committed the murder and other unsolved murders as well and in the second trial he was found guilty and sentenced to lose his life he spent his remaining days in prison experiencing god's grace he had continued periodic visits from these missionary women, Miss West and Miss McDonald. He spent time reading Christian books, and he especially spent time reading his New Testament. In writing about a conversation with the Buddhist chaplain who visited him, he said, I reached out for my New Testament, which was nearby, and said to him, In this book, the words of Christ are written, and through them, I know that he is here in this very cell. Although I cannot see him with my outward eye, I talk with him every day. And near the end of his life, he wrote, whatever agony is in my heart, I can now overcome. No matter what discomforts I endure, there is only gladness in my heart. The joy of each day is very great. These things are all due to the grace and divine favor of Jesus Christ. Grace, God's multicolored grace, involves both gift and response. God offers the gift of grace, and we choose whether or not to open our hearts and receive the gift. Grace, God's multicolored grace, his gift, also involves our response in serving. Faithful stewards use their gifts to serve others, carrying God's grace to our world. In his words in 1 Peter 4.10, Peter is really merely echoing the instructions that he had earlier, once before, heard Jesus give to him and the other 11 disciples when they were arguing in Luke 22 about who among them was the greatest. And Jesus helped them to see that it's the servant Peter knew that Jesus desires that disciples follow his example and be known for our service. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms, in its multicoloredness. As we come to the close of our service this morning, um, invite the worship team to come to the front the pastors any pastors who are here to come we'll be singing together um, two last hymns crown him with many crowns and how great thou art and as we stand we also invite anyone who might want to pray with someone um, or perhaps would like to come and pray at the prayer rails um, to please feel free to come to the front of the sanctuary as we sing God calls us uh, as we go to steward his grace in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our extended families, throughout the various businesses and workplaces that we'll be at in our region. So as we go, um, hear the words to this last hymn, he giveth more grace He giveth more grace as our burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength as our labors increase. To added afflictions, he added his mercy. To multiplied trials, he multiplies peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, Our Father's full giving is only begun. Fear not that thy need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm of the everlasting availing. The Father both thee and thy load will upbear. His love has not limits. His grace has no measure. His power, no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. His love has not limits, his grace has no measure. His his power, no boundary known unto men, for out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Help us, God, to receive your grace and help us to live out your grace, we pray. Amen. And Paul closed most of his letters to the churches with these words, Grace be with you. Grace be with you, my friends.